Welcome to Embargo, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I am here, as always, with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Mr. Timothy O'Toole. What is up, Tim, on this lovely spring Monday morning? How are you? I'm very good, Brian. It's, you know, it's the day after Easter for those of you who celebrate easter it's beautiful easter monday i think it's a holiday in a lot of the world as well it, it is indeed it is indeed also passover uh has just concluded as well so exactly. for those who celebrate passover um happy uh so yes happy monday happy spring uh happy holidays if you've if this is a holiday weekend for you welcome back to embargoed um thank you for uh joining again uh we have a we have an interesting episode this week i think uh as typically <laughs> occurs at sort of the last moment we had some late breaking news that we're gonna have to uh, tackle sort of right away so that's uh we've re we've kind of re-engineered the uh the outline the agenda for this week to accommodate that as we as we have to do quite often these days um so why don't we just get right to it i think we uh so just with the normal uh, upfront comments that um we're not giving legal advice we're not sharing any confidential information and in all opinions on this program are mine or tim's if you don't like them they are solely our uh, fault uh and if you are a fan of the pod please subscribe you can find us anywhere you get your podcast content please give us a rating uh, hopefully a five-star rating and please keep comments feedback questions topic suggestions coming we do appreciate that uh and uh without further ado i'm going to jump right into the roadmap uh so we have one big topic that i alluded to already that we're going to cover at the top which i think is going to be the um will be a, a fairly meaty substantive discussion about the talks that are starting this week in vienna relating to having the us come back into the jcpoa what we've been calling jcpoa 2.0 so uh that of obviously is of major significance uh and we're going to spend some time talking about that at the top and then we are going to proceed to cover the remainder of the topics in lightning round fashion we had planned to do an all lightning round program but I think JCPOA 2.0 kind of upended that. So after that, we're going to cover Hong Kong and China. We're going to cover Burma again, Belarus, the ICC, potentially for the last time, and a recent OFAC settlement with Nordgas. Uh, and that'll be our program for today. So uh, anything, Tim, before we launch in, or are we ready to, ready to roll here? No, I think we've been waiting for uh, JCPOA 2.0 for a while, and there have been some steps toward it, but I'm excited to talk about what looks like the first major step towards JCPOA 2.0. Yeah, so why don't we jump right in? So that's obviously, as I just said, topic number one uh, is the talks that are going to commence this week in Vienna, uh, I believe tomorrow. Today we're recording this on Monday, April 5th. Uh, and so this just came about at the very end of last week. There was a meeting uh, held between all of the uh, JCPOA, uh, the original JCPOA participants, the Joint Commission, uh, and without the U.S. to discuss the prospect of the U.S. coming back into the deal. Uh, and 
the flip side of that coin being Iran coming back into compliance with their obligations as well. And what has been decided is that, and that obviously all parties have been sort of dancing around this for the past few months, as we have talked about uh, extensively, the Biden administration has signaled that they are uh, highly interested in uh, getting back into the deal, uh, assuming that Iran will um, get back into compliance on, on their end of the deal. And so there have been some preliminary back and forth and signaling and indirect messages being passed. Uh, and now we finally, it seems, have some some talks that are starting, albeit indirect talks. And that is important to note that it is not as if, for those who are not following this closely, the US and um, the Iranians are not gonna be sitting across the table from one another in Vienna. They are gonna be essentially, this is the way that mediations work, is you sort of, you go off in your separate groups and there'll be a group working with the US and a group working with the Iranians is the way it's been reported. And there's there's a hope that they will come to some common ground in terms of what each side feels that they need or want or is willing to give in order to uh, really kind of relaunch the talks in earnest to get uh, to get a deal back on track and to get everybody back into the deal. Um, a few things just to note quickly at the outset before I sort of throw this back to Tim. And there's and I think as as you may expect, there's a lot of questions that now flow from this. Uh, which is, I think, what we want to spend the bulk of our time talking about, which is, is doing as we like to do, doing some prognosticating and some brainstorming about what we think uh, we're likely to see here over the next weeks and months. And it, the one thing that is working um, in terms of the clock on this is that uh, the Iranians uh, have an election coming up in June. And I think conventional wisdom in most of the policy experts who have who scrutinize this closely think that there is going to be high motivation on the Iranian side to get something agreed to and done before the election. So that for a few reasons, one is to show some progress uh, and hopefully either be able to demonstrate that sanctions have already been eased to some degree and more may be coming uh, and to be able to credibly claim a win for the Iranian side perhaps before the election. Obviously, there's also just the that sort of potential chaos that could ensue if there's an entire if the election results turn out uh, to sort of flip control of the government and there's an entirely new team and perspective to, that could be coming to the table by the by the summertime. So that's also a bit of a that's a bit of an urgent matter uh, on the U.S. side. Obviously, with the Biden administration still very fresh with. Uh, still a lot of resistance to this deal in, in Congress and in other pockets of the government. There's They need to kind of tread carefully here to not be appearing to give up too much, I think, uh, to get back into this deal. Um, that being said, the, there I saw a quote from an, a senior administration official, uh, although not, not attributed, but certainly an on-the-record quote that said, look, maximum pressure under the Trump administration just didn't work. And we think that it's time to sort of jettison that approach and to rethink what we had started, you know, several years ago under the Obama administration, which is this deal and moving toward a, you know, a non-nuclear Iran and perhaps seeing what can be changed and modified to improve the deal from our perspective and from perhaps everybody's perspective. And so, that I think is where things stand at the moment. And of course, 
um, the the first big question for you, Mr. O'Toole, is you know so what so number one, what are your reactions? And number two, thinking about what has been you know there was a lot of discussion about what what was trying to be sorted out here is what are some initial mutual steps that we could see from the U.S. and from Iran that are going to lead us back into a deal. That may still be coming, and obviously on the U.S. side, I think it would be sanctions relief. On the Iranian side, it would be, are they going to stop enriching uranium at the rate that they are currently doing so and, and, and working on centrifuges and other things that are of concern that are clearly not consistent with their obligations under the deal, the original deal. Um, but now there's also some, some suggestion that perhaps the both sides are willing to just kind of jump ahead a bit and sort of say, well, what is a, what is a deal? What is a two, what is JCPOA 2.0 really going to look like? Let's just, let's just get down to it and figure out in, you know, at a high level, what is this all going to look like? And obviously even with time pressures that I just outlined, this is going to take some time. I can't imagine this is all going to come together in a matter of weeks. This is going to be months in like, in all likelihood, but that being said, they could, it's not out of the realm of possibility that there could be some broad understanding at a high level of what a deal might look like in the next few months. And then it'll take a little while to kind of get the details hammered out thereafter. So let me stop there and throw it to you. What are your initial impressions about what's being reported and what do you expect to see in the short term? So I, I guess the, my first impression is that the politics here is important for both sides. So on the one hand, I think from the U.S. side, um, President Biden does not want to look like he's giving in to the Iranians and certainly not giving in to the Iranians um, when they are not in compliance with their nuclear obligations. Now, from the Iranians' perspective, they were in compliance with their nuclear obligations when the U.S. was in the deal, and they only went out of compliance with them when the U.S. left the deal. So I think they would debate you know, how much at fault they are for not being in, in, in compliance with those obligations. But nonetheless, I think from the U.S. side, President Biden doesn't want to go first because he wants the Iranians to commit first to returning to compliance with their nuclear obligations, which was the premise of the deal. So that politics are important from the U.S. side. From the Iranian side, I think it is important for the current government with the elections upcoming to show that it can get sanctions relief, that that the economy, I mean, Iran, like the U.S. and like many other countries, was hit very hard by COVID-19. And the economy uh, took that plus the sanctions hit. And I think that the current government needs to show some progress and some quick progress and getting sanctions relief would be a big boon to them. And so the real question in my mind on the politics is, you know, that all of that is really pushing towards a, a quick deal. Um, on the other hand, it's unlikely that anything really quick can happen in part because kind of a, my second impression is really that the obstacles that uh, the Republicans generally, but President Trump at the end of his term, um, put in the way to returning to, to, to the JCPOA are real. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, so President Trump at the end of his term imposed all sorts of new sanctions well beyond those that, that were in existence and that were covered by JCPOA 1.0. And so when you're you know, trying to go back into the JCPOA, you can't just jump right back into it because which sanctions get lifted, which new sanctions get lifted, presumably all of them. I mean, I think that's probably the operating premise, but 
the JCPOA didn't address some of the sanctions that were there, and and it was very detailed about what you did with particular sanctions and you know who came off lists and that sort of thing. So there's going to be a lot of work to be done to address those sanctions. It's not going to be just like they could just slip the JCPOA back into place because it was too specific about which sanctions were lifted, and there's lots of new sanctions that the, it couldn't have taken into account at the time because they didn't exist at the time. The other thing that I think you know opposition to the the deal on the US side was in part based on the fact that it was what the, what you know it was a temporary deal it was only 10 years and it's being portrayed in the media now i think correctly as very tough measures on the nuclear side but but in exchange for temporary sanctions relief i mean now it's down to 4 years i mean the jcpoa was signed in in 2015 and i think the the obligations expire in 2025 do do you go back into the deal for only a 4 year commitment is a really, I think, tough question. And from a, a kind of an optic standpoint, I really see it, it being difficult for, for the Biden administration to essentially sign a, an agreement that expires in only four years and, and lift the sanctions in the process. And so I think there's going to have to be some discussion about whether you make those sanctions uh, the, or whether you make the agreement you know, longer term. Do you make it permanent? I mean, how do you deal with the, the timing issue is really another concern. And I guess the third impression is, and, and this is kind of from looking at related news, is that you know I think we said uh, you know, when the U.S. withdrew from the JCPOA, not on the podcast because there wasn't a podcast yet, but we were we were out and about. I think we were over um, in the Far East uh, talking about the JCPOA when we when the U.S. withdrew from it, and we said at the time that China would be the big winner in this, and China is signing trade treaties um, with Iran as we speak and has been engaging in in oil trade with Iran, potentially sanctionable, but oil trade with Iran throughout the U.S. withdrawal from the JCPOA. I I do think that that really uh, changes the dynamic of the JCPOA. I mean, I think the Iranians need it from a political perspective because the sanctions have hurt their economy, but they don't need it as much as they might have before because China is becoming a bigger and bigger trade partner with Iran. And so I, I think China's you know, rise in, in connection with Iran trade is really going to affect the dynamic of these negotiations and how much Iran is willing to give up to get either more sanctions relief or just the sanctions relief in the JCPOA. Yeah, a couple, just a couple of things. So the restrictions under the JCPOA originally that would apply to Iran, some of them are 10 years, some of them are 15 years. So it just, it depends. So some, so there are some that would be a little longer term, even if they were unaltered and we just went back to the original. But I agree with you. I think that given that there's kind of an, an ability to reset a bit and rethink, I think that is clearly what's going to happen is that a lot of this is going to be rethought. And not, not surprisingly, I would imagine... <laughs> The Iranians and the Europeans, quite frankly, who were livid when the U.S. pulled out of the deal in 2018, are, are going to want some assurances and some other, uh, you know, leverage perhaps against the U.S. That if, if you know, if four years from now or five years from now we're under a, you know, we have a Trump acolyte that's in the White House who is going to come back and say, no, this the second deal was even worse than the first deal. I'm going to I'm pulling us out again, you know then there's no, you know, we're kind of in boy who cried wolf territory here. And there needs to, I would imagine, be some legitimate assurances that that's not going to happen again. So I think that's a comp that is a significant complicating factor you have to keep in mind as well. And then to the second point you made about China, which I think is a very good one. Let's keep in mind, though, 
that is not going to tell the whole story in terms of the Europeans, because as we know, the Europeans are much closely, more closely aligned with the, even though there's the blocking statute and all the other uh, things are in place now to sort of um, formally, you know, rebuke the U.S. approach to secondary sanctions with respect to Iran, as we know very well from our clients and from all of the issues we deal with on this front, the Europeans are pretty well aligned with the U.S. in that they're not going near Iran at the moment because they're too fearful of being cut off from the U.S. financial system. And so unless or until there is meaningful sanctions relief, that's not going to change. And even if that sanctions relief comes as part of this 2.0 deal, I think the second, the point I just made about people being a bit gun shy about jumping back in is a, is going to be a real barrier here for a little while. I mean, they were, they were, uh, many, many companies who were, I think, inclined to get back into the Iranian market uh, or to explore the Iranian market for the first time in 2016 were gun shy at that point because they were a little worried about how this was all going to play out. And then obviously that turned out to be because of the U.S. pulling out two and a half years later. I mean, that turned out to be a bit of a, you know, a disaster and at a minimum, just a huge logistical and compliance headache for everybody to deal with, even if even if it didn't um, sort of create any, you know, kind of wounds that lasted any longer than that. And so I think if we're looking at another go round of this, there's going to be some real soul searching. Now, as we know, if companies think there's money to be made legally, they're going to weigh the risks and they're going to decide whether they can live with that or not. And so I think that there's going to be a lot of that. I just think it's it's just going to be that much more complex and that much murkier at this point. And I think in the, sh you know, in the short term, I think you're right. I think the assumption has to be that we're going to revert to a to to a position that is pretty similar to where we were pre 2018, uh, where all of the sanctions that have been lifted via JP, JCPOA 1.0 are gone and everything that was additional that was added in the last two plus years is also going to be gone eventually. I don't know what the phasing of that's going to look like. I don't know if some of that comes off sooner or later or how they're going to sequence that, but uh, you have to assume that's probably where we're going. But I think again, half the battle when you lift secondary sanctions is convincing those people that are in the crosshairs potentially for those sanctions that they're safe to pursue these opportunities and i think that's going to be a, that is going to be a much trickier thing to do i think the second time around yeah i i mean i, I think there's got to be and i don't know how you do it and i and there, the politics may be difficult but i think there's got to be some type of withdrawal only for cause mechanism that is put into these deals that where essentially you're in unless you can show cause that the other that somebody is violating the agreement and that will allow you to to get out of the agreement and and maybe some sort of monetary penalty for early withdrawal that's significant enough that it'll stop um you know anybody from withdrawing on the, from this because the deal doesn't really work if um companies feel like it could change any minute because there is, as we know, a lot of investment that needs to be put in to get into the Iran business because the companies that do this, um, especially if the JCPOA 2.0 is like 1.0 in the, in the sense that the U.S. sanctions, the primary sanctions that apply to U.S. persons against Iran, don't get lifted. If they don't get lifted, which I, 
I'd find it shocking if they would, if it would, if, if lifting the primary sanctions was part of any new deal. Assuming that that's the case, any European company that wants to go into Iran is going to have to expend substantial resources, not just developing a, you know, a network in Iran and doing all the things that you have to do to get into a particular country, which are expensive in and of themselves, but the compliance costs are going to be relatively large because you have to make sure that you're only doing business in Iran in a way that doesn't involve a U.S. nexus that could get you sanctioned. And so, who is gonna who is gonna go to that sort of effort? Again, when you have a, an example three years before of one party just unilaterally withdrawing because the politics change, it seems like it, the, the idea that this would work is really only viable if there's some sort of serious mechanism that pre- prevents, uh, you know, without cause unilateral withdrawal. And I don't know how you do I, it. I mean, I think it's got to be. Yeah, I mean, I think in, in theory that makes sense, but I, I just I can't imagine the U.S. ever signing up to something that would be punitive and potentially against their interests if there was some, if there was some, you know, for policy reasons, there was some reason that they would want to withdraw again. And I, maybe that's the catch, right? Or that's, there's the rub. But at the, at the same time, um, you know, this was always going to be, it was going to rise and fall on sort of the good faith of all of the parties involved, right? And there was going to have to, and, and again, the, 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 the the problem or the way that this was forecast originally was there's got to be mechanisms to ensure that the Iranians are keeping up their end of the deal. And, and, you know, the idea that uh, one of the other parties would unilaterally withdraw was not really uh, in anybody's mind. And and now here we are, and now that's an extra complication that needs to be sorted out. Uh, So, you know, we'll have to see. I, I don't. I don't know. It'll be fascinating to see how this p- plays out over the next couple of months. One other thing, maybe one last thing that I want to throw out to you to to contemplate here. Um, you know, we we still hear a lot from companies that are they have some opportunity that comes up that's maybe an indirect, you know, business in Iran or or, or some some kind of Iranian connection that's coming up. Some of these are. They just kind of come up in the normal course of business, right? They're not necessarily looking for these. They they come up, and then the question quickly turns to, well, what is the what is the secondary sanctions risk? What is my what is my risk here of being subject to blocking sanctions, or perhaps one of the lesser sanctions, depending on the circumstances? And one thing that I know that I recall uh, sort of clearly from the lead up to JCPOA 1.0 is that there was, I think, a general understanding and feeling that the U.S. was not going to, in in order to sort of keep the good faith negotiation ongoing, they were not going to be aggressively pursuing folks versus, via secondary sanctions during the run-up to uh, signing a deal. Because if these things are going to go away, then, you know, you, you sort of, you can't have it both ways. You can't be crushing people left and right for uh, engaging in sanctionable conduct that's covered by the secondary sanctions that are only back in place because we pulled out of the deal uh, and and then trying to negotiate a new sort of a version 2.0 at the same time. So I guess my question is just at a, and obviously the caveat to this is it, it, it all depends. It depends on the circumstances. It depends on the, the industry you're talking about. It depends on a lot of different things. It depends on the counterparties, but what do you think to to companies out there that are starting to think up along those lines, which is oh maybe the maybe that deal that I thought was 
risky six months ago or a year ago, maybe it's not as risky now if I wanted to revisit that. Uh, you know, again, we're not giving legal advice. If you have real questions about this, you have to please call us offline. But uh, just as a general matter, I think this is an interesting one because I think that we're coming into that zone where there's likely to be lighter enforcement when it comes to those. And we haven't seen a ton of enforcement in the secondary sanctions realm anyway. It's there as a deterrent and it works as a deterrent, we know. But the idea that um, companies are going to be sort of factoring this in now, at least for the foreseeable future, before we have clear guidance on what's next. What are your what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a an interesting question for companies, because as you pointed out, Brian, the enforcement risk, even during the maximum pressure times was pretty low, particularly for European uh, companies that were um, not engaging in the oil sector. So, you know, I I can't really think of any examples of companies that got sanctioned for doing any of that business. And yet Iran was selling at least some oil during that whole time period. And so, so, um, you know, I tend to think that if you're making a risk-based decision as a company as to the likelihood of enforcement of secondary sanctions under the Biden administration, which is actively trying to repair relations with European countries and its European partners in NATO, um, which is now about to start engaging in indirect talks to go back into the, the nuclear deal where secondary sanctions are lifted, as a practical matter, not giving legal advice, but as a practical matter, you could make a decision that the enforcement risks are very low. That said, they're not going to be zero until the sanctions are lifted. And the problem is, is that although, you know, the the chances of any one company getting hit are small, that if they do get hit, it's basically a death sentence for a, a company that relies on the U.S. financial system. And so it's like, how 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 risk averse are you? You know, if you're you know if you you like to to let it ride on the on on you know on on the eleven, then go for it. But but it is because it, I I do think that the enforcement risks are very small right now for secondary pure secondary sanctions violations. But yeah, but you you I, already... I wouldn't want to do it if if I had if it was my company. Right. And you and as you already pointed out, I think the the there there seems to be a very low likelihood that we're getting rid of more than just the secondary sanctions. I think we might be back in line with kind of where we were again three, four years ago during the the beginning of the uh, JCPOA implementation the first time around. And if that's the case, even if you can operate, even if you're totally non-U.S., business, you're based outside the U.S., and you're employing non-U.S. people by and large, you're still running the risk that you could involve a U.S. person, whether it's one of your own people, an agent, a bank, etc. And then all of a sudden you're still looking at big, you're still looking at big penalties potentially. So it's not, it's not as if your compliance, it's not as if your compliance issues go to zero or go away. They, they don't, and they probably never will with Iran, at least not in not in our lifetime as, as things are, are going, but, uh, but I think it is an interesting question to, to sort of entertain. And I'm, and I think we have a sense that companies are starting to entertain that now as, as t- these talks are actually starting to happen and, and the prospect of a, a 2.0 version of the deal becomes a bit more real. 
Yeah, I mean, just a final thought on that, and we'll get we'll, we'll actually circle back to it at the end. But I mean, it is going to be complicated for companies to make this decision um, on the fly because while they can say we're willing to take a secondary sanctions risk, a lot of companies don't quite understand what a secondary sanction is. And so, as we'll see at the the very end of the lightning round, I mean, there's a company in Italy that's just got in big trouble a couple of weeks ago for. D- trading with Iran, but from Italy. And I think from their perspective, and OFAC even seems to suggest that in the settlement agreement, they didn't really get that by selling from Italy to Iran, that they were creating a primary sanctions risk, but it was US origin goods. And so they, I mean, they they probably got it given some of the things in the, in the the, the other facts in the discussion, which we'll get to, but but nonetheless, I mean, OFAC recognized there that there's a lot of misinformation about there about when the primary sanctions apply, and just having U.S. origin goods that are re-exported to Iran apply, and those won't be affected at all by the JCPOA. So there'll still be a lot of risk for European companies, even the ones that know what they're doing after the JCPOA, but there's a lot of misinformation out there. I mean, that's been my experience. I know it's been your experience over in Europe about when, you know, when the Iran sanctions will apply in the first place. And so it, you know, as I said, I think the the likelihood of a secondary sanctions enforcement action against a European company for doing business in Iran while the new JCPOA is being negotiated are pretty low, especially outside of oil. But I, I still wouldn't do it. And I think it'd be crazy risky for a European company to just make that decision kind of on the fly without a real examination of what their risks are. Right. Okay, so we'll leave things there for now. That's uh, obviously an item we're going to monitor very closely. I'm sure we will be back on this before too long as potentially the indirect talks turn to direct talks and we get more uh, information to help us understand what this may all look like and what the impl- implications are going to be for companies around the world. But uh, we'll, we'll leave it there. And that is the only, as I said, the only sort of full topic we're going to cover today. And now the rest of the program we're going to cover in wait for the sound effect lightning round fashion so with that let me toss it back to tim and let's take a quick um a quick glimpse at what just came out from the state department on hong kong absolutely we've talked about this a few times um but under the the u.s hong kong policy act of 1992 um the secretary of state is supposed to to report every year uh about what the what the status is of um, Hong Kong's uh, autonomy that is guaranteed under the uh, agreement with the UK um, that that essentially turned Hong Kong back over to the to the Chinese government. And so, on March 31st, uh, Secretary Blinken submitted the first uh, report from the Biden administration on this issue. Um, and, and the Secretary of State is also required to certify essentially up or down as to whether Hong Kong's status uh, warrants differential treatment under US law from China. Um, and essentially, th- that is a determination of whether or not Hong Kong is sufficiently autonomous is, uh, such that uh, the U.S. will treat it differently for export control purposes and, and for a number of other trade purposes. The Trump administration uh, answered that question, no. And I think on the pod, we have talked about you know, what, what would the Biden administration, what view would the Biden administration take with respect to Hong Kong? And our view was that it would probably take a very similar uh, position. And when you read through the report that came out uh, at the end of March, I think that 
was perfectly confirmed. Um, this report could have been written in some sense by the Trump administration um, in terms of the, the, the tone and the viewpoint. I mean, it's a very professional report, but it is really very scathing in terms of the PRC um, and in terms of Hong Kong's uh, not getting the promised degree of, of autonomy. I mean, it goes through and it highlights various actions that the, the Chinese national security law has, has various effects that that law has had on Hong Kong's autonomy, talks about um, arbitrary arrests, politically motivated prosecutions of opposition politicians, activists, peaceful protesters. Um, it, it really is, as I said, relatively scathing, a de facto ban on public demonstrations. And, and so it, 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 Secretary Blinken certified that Hong Kong is not sufficiently autonomous to be treated differently, and that was exactly the position of the Trump administration. So, in that sense, nothing has changed. You know, the, that 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 determination has trade consequences, but I think it also sends a signal that the um, that the the sanctions program that relates to Hong Kong autonomy is probably not going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, I, I, I don't have too much to add other than, yeah, newsflash, Hong Kong is still part of the PRC as far as the United States is concerned. Uh, not surprising, as Tim has said. Uh, you know, I, I think what's somewhat interesting here, and, and again, this is, another, this is another topic that we've talked about a lot, is in some ways, I think the when from the time when the national security law was passed last year, targeting Hong Kong to now, and with all of the news reports that have come out, you know, delays in the elections, uh, cracking down on uh, public demonstrations, on opposition party leaders, on other things of that sort, um, there certainly, China is not, not only is China not backing down or being cowed whatsoever by the fact that the U.S. has decided to take the step and to impose sanctions on some of the people involved in this conduct, they have in some ways, you know, almost relish the opportunity to sort of come, come hard at this issue and to, to deal with it. Again, they, they maintain it's a purely internal domestic issue as they do with Xinjiang, which is another area that continues to grow worse and worse and get more and more kind of public scrutiny. And, and now there are many, different companies that are kind of in the crosshairs there that are taking sides and that are being called out by China or by the U.S. and people outside of China who have human rights concerns. And I think this is just, this I think goes back to a question that we have posed a number of times, which is, what is the goal of the sanctions program here? What are we hoping to actually accomplish? Because one could argue that we've we're exacerbating the situation, perhaps. Now, one could also argue that from a symbolic and moral and political standpoint, we have to do something. So we are doing what we can to impose sanctions on the people that are responsible here, and same with Xinjiang. But again, what is the end game? What is what is actually going to potentially change behavior? And I don't know what the answers to those questions are. And I don't know that anybody really knows, but that's kind of where we find ourselves now with, with Hong Kong and Xinjiang in particular. And I think there are going to be, again, Taiwan, South China Sea, there are other issues with respect to China where we're going to see the same kind of thing bubble up and the same kind of response in all likelihood from the PRC. And so I, I, all I do is kind of throw that out there as kind of food for thought. And, and to, as Tim said, 
this is not the sanctions program is not going away in part because it's not really doing much right now other than causing some individual pain for the people that have been put on the list perhaps and you know if there's a change in approach or if we kind of steadily just keep this very you know these individual designations going and and see what that yields i don't know but but that's that's really that's that's sort of what springs to mind here well, I mean, this is, I, you know, the one point I just wanted to chime in on, because I think it's a really great point, is that this does show why you really need to think long and hard before imposing sanctions in the first place or setting up a sanctions program in the first place, because... That's going to be a theme through this episode for the next couple of topics, Right. <laughs> I mean, because what do, what do you hope to, you know, one, one of the, at least theoretically, when you're theoretically thinking about where sanctions, you know, work best, usually with an economy that is close to the size of yours, and that has, you know, that is, that is also open to the world, um, the chances of sanctions doing much are very small, because China is, the Chinese economy is just too big, it has too many trading partners, it's really going, it's all, it, it, it's always going to be hard to impose sanctions and have them be effective against an economy that large. And so you have to think long and hard about whether that is the right approach. I guess one other reason that you have to think about that, that your comment made me think about is once you impose a sanctions program, especially if it's for a really good cause. So for example, I, I don't think there's almost any dispute along all of the you know ideological spectrum in the United States that what the Chinese are doing in Hong Kong is is a real is very problematic for a variety of reasons, you know, including the cancellation of an election for COVID reasons when we had an election here, where the you know during COVID when the outbreak was just as bad. I mean, it was just certainly it, it was it was worse. worse. It was yeah. worse here in the U.S. Yeah, and so so like it, it all of the things that the Chinese were doing are not really defensible in Hong Kong, at least from a U.S perspective, and that is not a left or right issue. So there's no dispute here that this is bad. Once you, when you impose sanctions for that, there's really politically no way to lift them because it's going to look like you're, you're condoning what's going on in Hong Kong. So that's why it's another reason why it's so important to determine, you know, whether or not they're worth imposing in the first place. Um, and, and if, and, and, and another problem with, with, you know, I think the Trump maximum pressure philosophy was, you know, sanctions have no cost. And so we're going to just impose them every time we're upset about a foreign policy issue. And, and you know, again, we'll talk later in the segment about whether they are reversible, because sometimes they are, but they're very hard to reverse in situations where everyone agrees going in that there is a real problem here and everybody agrees on kind of who the culprit is, because you can't look soft by lifting the san sanctions against the culprit without sending a message that we don't really care about Hong Kong. So I, I'm not advocating for lifting them, but once you decide to go down that road, you certainly have a hard time um, ever coming to the conclusion that they're not worth it. Yeah. And again, yeah. just to wrap up here, I, I mean, perhaps the symbolic value of this is enough at this point, perhaps, and perhaps we're willing to deal with the collateral consequences of that from the, in terms of angering the Chinese to make a point, make a statement, take us, take a moral stand on this issue. That might, that might be enough, honestly. And the practical benefits are, it seems minimal at the moment, but that might be enough. So in, in any event, that's that's sort of a big, big picture item that I think you know we'll, we'll come back to again. But but on this on this front in particular, I think it's it's really uh, it, it's really a, a notable 
aspect of it that I think needs to be needs to be thought about and considered. So with that, let's move to lightning round topic number two, which is Burma. And here, too, I think we're dealing with some of those same types of issues we talked quite a bit about since the executive order came into place shortly after the coup. What is what is the end game here for the U.S.? What is the strategy? How aggressively are they going? Is the U.S. going to pursue sanctions? Well, uh, a little less than two weeks ago, there was a new and, and of course, the backdrop here is that things continue to get worse that the conditions continue to be worse, that the violence can, perpetrated by the military continues to uh, persist. And um, it, it is really pretty um, you know, disheartening to see the news coming out of Burma these days. But two, is, a little less than two weeks grim. ago. I would say yeah, grim it, is a good word for it. I think that's not an over... Awful. Yeah, that's not an overstatement. And so... Uh, a little less than two weeks ago, we had two additions to the SDN list under uh, 14014, the Burma EO, and those were pretty big ones. This is the two military holding companies that we've alluded to previously. This is Myanmar Economic Holdings Public Company Limited, MEHL, and Myanmar Economic Corporation Limited, MEC. They were both added to the SDN list uh, on March 25th, and this is significant to some degree because they cover... A, a huge swath of the economy, MEHL is involved in uh, banking, trade, logistics, construction, mining, tourism, uh, consumables. Uh, MEC is, uh, you know, a similar uh, array of industries that they're involved in as well. And and as as reported and as uh, stated in the in all of the public statements and the press release that accompany the designations. You know, this, this is money that goes straight into the pockets of the of the military leadership. And so it's clear the reasons why these two companies, these two conglomerates would be targeted. Now, the sort of the knock on effects of this, the secondary effects, uh, hard to calculate because I think there's there's in all likelihood going to be some uh, pain felt by the Burmese people, by the populace of, of Myanmar uh, here because of how broad these conglomerates uh, operate in the the industries that they operate in and given that you know there is a there was a GL there was a general license that was issued general license 4 that allowed for wind down activities with these companies in their um, 50% or more owned subsidiaries through June 22nd so there's quite a quite a bit of time on the wind down front but we know certainly from the questions we're getting and the conversations we're having i think more and more companies more and more uh, interests are, are thinking about having to pick up and just leave Burma behind and treat it again as it was treated, you know, 10 years ago, uh, when before there was some uh, move toward democ democratization, and it's it's kind of a sad state of affairs. But I think in the incremental, in the incremental progression of what the U.S. is has trying to do here, this seems to be this seemed to be the logical next step. I think we could see more entities like this that kind of play similar roles uh, in terms of generating revenue for the military. I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of that. I don't think we're going to see maximum pressure again. I still don't think we're going to see that, as we've said, and as, as this administration has kind of dis dismissed as being an effective strategy because uh, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is is the the toll it takes on the, the, the civilian population in the country. Uh, but I do think that this is this as the trend continues to uh, get worse and worse on the ground there, I think there will be more and more of these types of actions. And I think as a result, we're going to see more and more 
companies have to make decisions about whether they can continue to do business in in Myanmar. And I think that's going to be a some have already I know made the decision that they're going to be treating them they're they're pulling out altogether. But I think this is a this is a rapidly evolving situation. A lot of companies are having to wrestle with this right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, the situation there is grim because the, apparently the the generals have decided to kind of come out from behind the screen again and seize power. Um, it, it is, I find it astounding. I mean, we knew this beforehand, but this designation has caused me to look at it more closely. That that the generals having you know, ruled there for 40 years, have used part of their rule to acquire these huge economic conglomerates who are then owned by the Myanmar military and pay, you know, dividends and salaries to high-level Myanmar military leaders. I mean, this is not a secret. And so these are the company, to me, that is just the the level of corruption that it, it, it suggests is pretty shocking, but it does allow for a pretty effective sanctions tool because if you own these big companies, they can be the top target of designation and you'll just be punishing the generals, at least mostly be punishing the generals as opposed to, um, you know, the sort of embargoes that, you know, take place in Iran or Cuba where you're punishing everybody because, you know, the whole country is essentially off limits as opposed to particularly targeted industries. Now, how much effect that will have um, remains to be seen. It could be quite a bit. I mean, Burma is a smaller economy, obviously, than China. It's the type of country where sanctions can work. And in fact, you know, arguably did work in the past, the last time around when the U.S. and, and other countries sanctioned Burma to the point where the the military, at least for a little while, was willing to to hand over power to a civilian government. So we'll see if they work here. It, they do have a better chance than, in my view, than the the sanctions against a country like China, um, where the idea that the U.S. is going to sanction China into submission on any of these issues just does not seem very realistic to me. All right. So from Burma, let's let's transition to topic number lightning round topic number three, which is one we don't touch on often, Belarus. And I'm going to throw back to Tim for that one. I think this may be our first foray into the Belarus sanctions program on, on embargo. We might have had a trivia question it on be. it once, um, but apart from that, I don't think we go there much. But Belarus was sanctioned for human rights violations. Um, one asked in the past, there is still a Belarus sanctions program. Uh, it, it, it has been relatively dormant in part because Belarus was making progress on human rights issues, at least from the view of the State Department, and it had made such progress that um, in 2015, uh, the OFAC issued a general license for nine state-owned industries in Bel- Belarus that were on the SDN list, but it was basically a general license that said, don't worry, if they're on the SDN list, you can do anything that you normally could do with these companies and treat them as though they're they're not on the SDN list. So it was basically a, a general license that took out all of the effect of these companies being SDNs. And it's been extended annually until relatively recently um, when it was extended, I think for two years, maybe even three, but it's set to expire in, in April in the end of this month and April 26th, I think is the date when it's set to expire. And so um, because the situation has deteriorated and and I do want to emphasize that issue from the State Department's um, perspective, I mean, they called it arguably the worst point in Belarus history um, with 300 political uh, 
prisoners currently detained in Belarus, the State Department has decided that it is not going to recommend to uh, Treasury that it reissue the general license and essentially put these companies back on to the SDN list in, in not only you know continuing their, their listing there, but making that listing have the normal practical effect of an SDN listing. Now, oddly, or I guess probably there's a there's a purpose here, they didn't they they have not uh there is has been no decision yet not to renew the general license so it's essentially state saying we're going to recommend to treasury this but if you were to change your behavior belarus in the next few weeks um we could reverse this step and so you know the the state department has now called on the belarusian authorities to take the step of lifting these sorts of um, political uh, human rights violations, and and uh, and and has outright said that that could affect the decision as to whether or not these companies come, you know, the general license gets extended. So we'll we'll have to wait and see. But I think it was an interesting step and and one that is, um, you know, it, it seems like they're trying to use this this GL as a carrot and to do it in advance so that they can try and get some effect out of it. Yeah, this is an example where there is a clear plan here, which is we're going to leverage this general license, which impacts nine state-owned petrochemical companies that are important to the Belarusian government and make it clear that you're not going to get another 12 or 18 months of GL coverage unless you release all these political prisoners. And for those who weren't following, there was a an election last year, the 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 ruling party, the ruling president, who's been in control of the country for decades now, uh, you know, is largely thought to be fraudulent and and rigged, and uh, opposition party opponents, you know, opponents were kept off the ballot, and people were prevented from bo- voting, and all kinds of things. And so uh, there was a few, there were a handful of sanctions that were issued late last year under the Trump administration that were targeted at some of those activities. But this is obviously a broader swing to try to um, get some movement here and to get the release of these uh, political prisoners and get some actual change in behavior. So we'll see. Again, it's pretty uh, a pretty targeted action. And, you know, there's they're on the clock. There's three weeks until this general license expires. So I think by the time we record our next episode, we'll know one way or the other whether it has has been uh, extended and reissued or whether perhaps reissued only for a shorter length of time. I think it was six months originally, and then it, it's now, it had ballooned up to the most recent was 18 months. Yeah, it was October uh, so, 2019 to, yeah, to so April it's, 2021. Exactly. So it was about an eight, this one was covering 18 months, but seems unlikely that they'll get another 18 months given where things are now, but uh, we'll, we'll see uh, how that plays out. And obviously this is pretty consequential for anybody who's got, dealings with any of those companies or or more broadly with uh, with Belarus, because it, it could signal that there's going to be some increased scrutiny and activity there from a U.S. sanctions perspective. So, yeah, I mean, uh, very surgical use of the sanctions power here. We'll see if it works, but it is, yeah. you know, they, they know what they want to do. They have one goal in mind. Um, it's a country that they've found some, you know, companies that are susceptible to, to sanctions and potentially could be very hurt by them and they've used that as leverage and and that's that is I think textbook use of the the sanctions power now whether it will actually change behavior is 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 remains to be seen but I think that's the whole point is they're trying to change a particular type of behavior and they're using sanctions in a way that they, in their view has the most likely chance of doing it 
Yeah, surgical is a good description for it. I think that's exactly right. So, uh, so with that, let's let's move on, and so we'll be back to check on that. I'm sure in a few weeks, once we once we come, April 26 comes and goes. Uh, to that, let's go to lightning round topic number four. Only two topics left, and this is one of our favorites. We're and like I said, this may be now the last time we talk about this one, which is the executive order targeting uh, the ICC that we talked about quite extensively, uh, most recently in the context of. The lawsuit that was filed where there was a preliminary injunction that was granted to the open society justice initiative and some uh lawyers who wanted to continue working with the icc but felt that they couldn't under the uh the current sanctions program and on april 1 uh, president biden signed an executive order that rescinded and revoked the existing executive order uh, 13928 that was put in place by President Trump last year. I think at the time, my prediction was this one might get issued and never used, and then it would go away under potentially a new administration. So I was wrong, but it did only get used for the two individuals, the prosecutor and the other high-level ICC official, uh, who are now obviously no longer subject to sanctions. Those have been lifted by revocation of the executive order. Uh, And I think this is a move that's being applauded uh, by allies, certainly all the signatories to the ICC and uh, other kind of justice, international justice and human rights groups who saw the uh, Trump executive order as being just completely counter to U.S. values when it comes to international criminal justice and human rights um, initiatives. Uh, I will say, though, uh, and this was announced, uh, Secretary Blinken made a big announcement about this on Friday about the revocation, uh, but both in President Biden's statement accompanying the executive order and in uh, Secretary Blinken's statement, they were quick to point out that they still don't agree with what the ICC is doing, particularly with respect to potentially investigating U.S. troops in Afghanistan and Israeli forces in Palestine, uh, as those are kind of the two central events that sort of raise the ire of the Trump administration with respect to the ICC. Uh, so there is certainly no love lost, I think, with the ICC. But in keeping with uh, perhaps more traditional uh, approaches, I think they've they've signaled that sanctions is not going to be the way that we're going to try to deal with this. And I think that we we brought this up at the time, and I think this this was called out in some of the articles that were commenting on the revocation. You know, when the U.S. is going to use sanctions to literally go after every foreign policy action anywhere around the world that it doesn't like, it's going to run the risk of just devaluing the tool and also encouraging copycat actors. They were they were citing China's recent actions to go after um, to go after people in a similar regard and and basically saying the U.S. you gave China the idea to do this because once you do it. You have no moral high ground to claim that this is something that you, you shouldn't. Nobody should be doing, and we should be respecting these institutions. So I think this is something that you know we've been focused on quite a bit. I think this administration is very sensitive to and is trying to sort of unwind as quickly as they can to preserve the credibility and the utility of the sanctions tool. Certainly, uh, and so there's there's kind of a lot in this, but again. Uh, and, and also, I should add, there was a filing deadline in that Open Society Justice Initiative court action that was coming up this week. So I think the timing here is no accident. I think they didn't want to have to make a substantive filing in that case. They wanted to be able to say the case is moot because the executive order is now gone. And and so that is 
as we've seen in a couple of other instances, that these court deadlines can be big drivers to uh, actually shift policies. So to any of you in enterprising sorts out there who want to um, who want to kick around these ideas or, or explore these ideas, I mean, we talk about this all the time. I think it's it's worth thinking about. If you do it in the right way, you can actually spur some action. Uh, so so let me stop there and throw it to you, Tim. What are what are your sort of quick thoughts on the ICC EO going away? So I mean, I I don't think I've been shy about this. I've thought all along this was a stupid sanctions program, a stupid executive order. It never should have been issued. It was a poor use of the sanctions tool for all the reasons that you just said, Brian, including the fact that you know copycat actors who never wanted to comply with international norms at all can use it um, in their own right to to resist much more traditional um, exercises of of the ICC's jurisdiction. But uh, getting back to a point that we were making earlier, uh, it does also show how hard it is to to do away with a sanctions program once once one started. I mean, I don't think there was any dispute among the Biden administration that this was a stupid program that never should have been issued in the first place. But, you know, if you read their statements, you have to look how carefully they, they go out of their way to say, but, you know, by doing this, we are not agreeing with the ICC's uh, exercise of jurisdiction in the following places, which was the dispute that led to the sanctions program in the first place. And so, you know, on an issue where there's lots of agreement about the underlying policy is the is the ICC doing something that the U.S. thinks is beyond its jurisdiction? The answer was yes in the Trump administration. The answer is yes in the Biden administration. But you know the difference is that that you know the Trump administration imposed sanctions for that, and the Biden administration said no, we're going to deal with it in other ways. But even there, it was politically hard to do. On an issue, I think this issue is minor enough that they were willing to take the political risk. But there's going to be other issues like you know, China and Hong Kong, where I think the Biden administration would not have imposed sanctions in the first place. They might have tried to look for a different tool. Maybe they would have, but they're going to, but, but once those sanctions are there, there's just too much political heat to be taken for doing away with a program, even though it has very little chance of being successful. And so there, you know, I think it's just a great example of how hard it is to undo even the the most ridiculous of sanctions programs. Yeah, I think that's, that's all, agree with all of that. And I think this one also had the added benefit of not being that politically costly and also scoring some uh, brownie points with our allies who were deeply sort of offended and displeased with the fact that we had done this uh, in the first instance. And so again, in the name of building bridges and sort of strengthening ties to traditional allies, this is kind of an easy one. It's This is sort of low-hanging fruit from that perspective. And, and you're right, though, it did take two plus months and I think was only only happened last week because the court the court deadline was coming up but uh but in any event it's now done and presumably will stay done again unless uh you know four years from now we're we're back in um we're back under the an administration that is uh you know ruled by a trump acolyte who says we're going to throw sanctions at everything that we don't like anywhere around the world well on the political uh, just real quick on the political issue i mean i agree with you that this is one that seems outside of of public you know concern so so i doubt that they'll pay a political price but boy you could see you know a a, a very um, Machiavellian ad maker who runs the ad that says, you know, Joe Biden uh, allowed some bureaucrat in Brussels to throw U.S. troops in jail by, you know, taking this right. sort of action. And so I, you know, yeah, I think there is fair. some political risk to it. That's fair. That's absolutely fair. I could totally see that. And, you know, come summer of 
2024, we may see that ad and, and it's going to be your fault for suggesting it, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, be that as it may, I think you're right. The, I'm, the, the I'm cost guessing benefit there were here... others who would have come up with that, that ad. Yeah. Um, the cost benefit here though, I think is, is kind of, it makes it somewhat of a no brainer. And so I think, you know, now that this one's done and, and presumably this is, could very well be the last time we ever talk about the ICC uh, sanctions program. So, um, so goodbye and good riddance uh, from that perspective. And with that, we're uh, we're sailing along here. We're on our final topic of the day. I'm going to kick it back to Tim to so that we can talk briefly about our recent OFAC enforcement action. Um, as he alluded to earlier, an Italian company uh, called Nordgas. Italian company called Nordgas uh, was hit with a $950,000 penalty. It it agreed to that in a settlement that was announced on March 26th. Uh, As I mentioned, it was a case involving the Iranian sanctions where Nordgas, which is a company in Italy that produces and sells components for gas boiler systems, it it makes air pressure switches, um, and it sold 27 air pressure switches um, to uh, Iran after purchasing them from the U.S. I think the the OFAC found the conduct here to be egregious. I think what they found to be egregious about it was that in 2010, um, the Italian company uh, called the U.S. Uh, manufacturer and told them that what they were going to do with the air pressure switches, and the U.S. manufacturer said, no, we can't have anything to do with uh air pressure switches being uh, re-exported to Iran, that would be illegal. And so two years later, uh, Nordgas calls back and says, well, we'd like those air pressure switches and we're going to re-export them to some company in Italy. There was a discussion about, well, why don't you, why don't we just deliver them to that company in Italy and, and save you the hassle of having to get them and then send them there yourself? Nordgas said, no, hold on, you know, just send them to us and we'll, we'll take some action with them. And the action that they took with them was to re-export them to Iran, which is what they had originally told the U.S. company they were going to do in the first place. And so those were 27 violations of the Iran uh, sanctions, one for each air pressure switch. You know, the the under the OFAC penalty calculations, the fine would have been quite substantial, but it came down to 950,000, 650,000 of which was suspended, um, assuming that Nordgas uh, completes its compliance commitments, which are similar to the compliance commitments that uh, we have been seeing uh, relatively frequently from OFAC. The the interesting, I found the compliance considerations discussion of this quite interesting, um, in, in part for the way that OFAC framed um, some of the risks. And so I did want to quickly touch on all of those. I mean, the, it, this action, according to OFAC, demonstrates the risks that foreign companies assume when involving U.S. persons in goods pro- procured from the United States and dealing with U.S. sanctions, jurisdictions, and entities. Foreign companies involved in such trade should understand OFAC's pro- prohibitions can extend not to just U.S. persons, but to their foreign trading activities as well. Obfuscating the involvement of a sanctioned country or a person in a transaction by falsifying the names of end users or other parties does not insulate either U.S. or foreign persons from potential liability. I mean, I think this is these are principles that are known quite well to us, but I also think these are principles that we see in our practice are not known as well overseas. And so I think what OFAC was getting at here was, you know, if you are sitting in Italy dealing with Iran, you might think that your, your conduct has nothing to do with the U.S., but if you're buying goods from the United States, uh, the U.S. keeps jurisdiction over over this sort of thing. Um, it, I, the other the other item that I found 
relatively interesting here is um, the, the discussion of a foreign company's risk-based compliance program for U.S. sanctions. And there was some emphasis on this. And so, you know, OFAC has done a, a series of OFAC compliance commitments. I think there was were mostly engaged at U.S. companies where there is a U.S. nexus. But I think this emphasizes that foreign companies really ought to be paying attention to these principles too. And maybe there's some modification since they are not a U.S. company, but they are going to need an effective compliance program, one that really looks at what sales and other personnel are doing with respect to um, their products and whether or not there is a, enough of a U.S. nexus that the, the, the U.S. sanctions are applicable to the conduct. Yeah, I, I just have two two comments to add, really. One is sort of what Tim started talking about, and I'll take the flip side, which is not only from the, the European or the non-U.S. perspective, but from the U.S. perspective, because as we know, the scenario if wearing the hat of counselor to U.S. company or if you are sitting at a U.S. company, the 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 concern, the issue and what keeps you up at night is that you're dealing with a, a client or a customer in a foreign country who is telling you that they're going to use your goods for one thing and they're lying to you. And that's essentially what happened here, right, is that the U.S. company, the supplier was lied to. And how how much how much how many red flags have to be there? that you perhaps miss, or maybe there weren't any in this case, um, for you to be on the hook for that as well, because technically it is a violation for the U.S. supplier here. Now, they are not part of this, and to, to our knowledge, they were not assessed a penalty on their own because they are essentially the victim here because they were lied to by their foreign customer. But that's always the concern, obviously, is how much if we miss something, uh, you know, when are we going to be on the hook and are we going to be paying a big penalty here if we allow our items to go to Italy that then get re-exported to Iran? And and how much, when when should we know? When is the known or should have known? What is the, when does it become should have known, right? That That's a very difficult compliance question that we get all the time in terms of assessing red flags, in terms of getting in user certifications and things of that sort. What's enough? What's, you know, there's no check the box approach. It is a it is a holistic risk-based approach that you have to take. We say this all the time. OFAC says this all the time. And that's this this one I think really drives that home. The second point that I want to make is the penalty. It is it is interesting to me that it is so light quite frankly, because they are called out here, Norgas is called out for willful violations. I mean, this is potentially criminal conduct that we're talking about here. These were willful violations. They understood that they couldn't take these items and send them to Iran. And yet they are being, as Tim said, the, the base penalty amount was pretty substantial. It was over $7 million. The amount of goods that were at issue here was also pretty substantial. It was over $2.5 million, roughly. And they're going to end up paying if they if they um, comply with uh, their obligations under the settlement with three hundred thousand dollars penalty and that's it now they have a five-year obligation to provide annual reporting to ofac which is pretty significant is going to be a significant cost and perhaps that's what how the math was done is to say well look if they have to do this and they have to invest in that and they have to have their own internal people and outside consultants and lawyers helping them with that then that is probably worth more that they will spend more than they would pay to us in a penalty, and so let's do it that way. Um, but we don't we don't see this approach very often, where there's going to be, um, you know, a 
sort of a forgiveness of a penalty, a portion of a penalty with respect to OFAC. So I thought that was kind of interesting, um, just something to kind of keep in mind and to look for in the future. Not that I am, Tim and I are not on record as asking for or suggesting that any good companies out there deserve greater penalties or obviously we're in the business of doing the opposite and trying to advocate for lesser penalties or no penalties for our clients. But it's an interesting, it's sort of an interesting uh, approach that was taken here. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things on that, because that both points are really very interesting. I, so on the first point, um, you know, given that it is a should have known standard, and again, I don't know who the U.S. company was, and I, I doubt that you, given the, the explanation that it we'll happened yeah. to them and that we'll ever yeah. know who they are. But under a should have known standard, the Nordgas told this U.S. company um, that they were going to reship to Iran. That's red flag number one, right? Um, you know, and the U.S. company did exactly what it should have by saying, no, we can't do that. So that was good. They handled that red flag correctly, but it's still there when they're, re when they're dealing with Nordgas again. So then it, it, red flag number two for the U.S. company, I think, was um, the U.S. company offered to ship the goods directly to the end user and Nordgas rebuffed the offer claiming logistical concerns. That's pretty odd, right? Because, because you knew that they wanted to ship to Iran originally. Then they they claimed that they didn't, and you said, "Well, let, why don't you let us ship straight to the end user?" And they said, "No, no, no, we'll do it ourselves." And then I, the third red flag, which I, I have to say, this one would this one if if the U.S. company were to get in trouble, this would be the one that I think would pr probably push them over the edge. Apparently, Nordgas employees requested that the U.S. company remove the term "made in USA" from the switches. Um, and so, so those those three red flags were red flags that a U.S. company, from the you know the U.S. compliance perspective, would have to deal with in a situation like this, and and failing to catch those could arguably have gotten them into some some significant trouble. Even though it's clear that Nordgas was the real wrongdoer here, because Nordgas is the one that is going out of its way willfully to try and you know conceal the the final destination of these products as going to Iran, and you know they did a number of other things. Things that the U.S. company wouldn't have had insight into, so, you know, just using code words, um, you know, using de de deceptive replacement terms for Iran um, in correspondence and trade documentation with the company. So, so it, it really, it, it was the Nordgas that was doing, that was engaged in the most willful and problematic conduct, but under a should have known standard, you know, just Looking at it quickly, you can count at least three red flags that, from the U.S. perspective, that they probably, um, certainly on the one, the made, the remove the made in the USA label, probably could have done better on. And so, so it is a real dangerous situation when you're shipping overseas, especially after that first. Once the you know your trade partner mentions one time, we're going to reship to Iran. At that point, I think you've got to be on real guard with respect to um, what's happening. And then I think on the, the point with respect to cutting down the penalty, I mean, I think it's a very good one. I mean, I think the the lawyers for uh, Nordgas did a very nice job in getting a, a settlement that um, was well below what I think, given the conduct here, uh, you would reasonably expect in a case like this one. Yeah, I agree with that. And reiterate what Tim said. I think these are for compliance pros out there. I mean, these are red flag. These are right out of the red flag playbook, right? So you want to study this one and make sure that your training and your people are well aware of these types of activities to the extent that they're not already uh, incorporated into any kind of training or uh, internal controls, uh, because I think this is these are these are all pretty textbook. So.
with that, we will, uh, that is our final lightning round topic. We made it through quite a bit uh, in pretty efficient fashion today. Uh, so I think that is all we have for, for this episode. Uh, we will be back in, so this will be up uh, sort of middle of the first week of April. Uh, we will be back again in two weeks with our next episode. Uh, I think TBD what we'll be covering the next time around, whether we'll be having guests, uh, et cetera. But, um, but as Tim said at the outset, we're, um, you know, with, with springtime, with, with some springtime holidays past us here, I think we're all, um, again, feeling, feeling optimistic, feeling uh, hopeful that indirect and direct talks can yield some, some progress on the JCPOA 2.0 front. And uh, we will keep a close watch on, on all of this going forward. So uh, with that, Tim, any last thoughts? No, I think we got through a lot today. And I think, you know, there were some themes that kept coming through on, on all of these. You know, I think the, the, there was an Iran theme and a theme about, uh, you know, whether or not sanctions should have been imposed in the first place that I think we'll keep coming back to. Agree. And hopefully by the next time we record, uh, the Washington's Major League Baseball team will have played its first game uh, that we can only we can only hope that'll be the case. Uh, I'll, uh, otherwise, it'll be it'll have the ignominious um, benefit of being the first undefeated team to never play a game in Major League Baseball history, which hopefully will not happen. So I am hoping got our fingers crossed the, on that one as well. By the time this podcast is up, um, Washington is either playing or is about to play its first game. Yeah. Agreed. The first one in front of fans since the World Series. That's right. And for those of you outside the United States, forgive us, uh, silly Americans, for talking about baseball. But Tim and I both love baseball and we love the Nationals. So it is sad to see them not have played a game yet because of COVID concerns. But we hope everybody is well and gets well soon uh, and they're back on the field soon. So with that, we will wrap up for this week. Thank you all for joining. Uh, Until next time, stay sanctions free. Stay sanctions free, everybody. Stay safe. (laughs) 